we're going to go to 1 Timothy 6 and try to finish it out strong. Uh, we have just about 10 verses to get through. And then we can move into some discussion. And maybe before that or maybe after that, we'll read through the whole letter again. Um, just because it's good to, you know, we've gone wide, we went narrow, now we're going to go wide again. So I'll be reading uh, from verse 11 of 1 Timothy 6 and through to the end of the letter. Paul writes, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you were called to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope with it on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is, of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So um, this is the close of the letter. And uh, as such, Paul gives a number of closing remarks. You might notice that he seems to close in verse 16, and then he goes on, and then he closes again. But he's got, you know, he's, this is Paul, so he'll close a thought, and then he'll have another thought, and then he'll close that thought, and then he'll close it all down. But it's just how he writes. And so there's kind of, the structure of this passage is kind of weird because from verse 11 to verse 16 is one idea. I would say like a climactic idea in the letter. And then in verse 17 through uh 19, he kind of circles back to something he said earlier about being rich and content, which he says in chapter uh, 6, verses 2 through verse 10, which we talked a, a lot about last week, and we'll revisit some of that. And then he kind of closed the letter out, closes the letter out uh, to Timothy and then to all of us. So um, it's a little bit of a weird structure, so if it feels a little disjointed, it's because Paul wrote it that way. So um, the first thing that he talks about in verse 11 is... Um, let's say, a recapitulation of a charge. So if you just, I mean, you hear it in the ESV and whatever translation you have in front of you, you'll kind of hear that same force. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness. Um, and then he goes on to list some other things to pursue. But um, he's, he's contrasting this with what he's just finished saying in uh, the previous verses about being in love with money, being someone who's quarrelsome, being someone who causes constant friction, those are marks of the false teacher. And he says to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So basically, you can't say in more strong terms, don't do that whole list of things that was just mentioned, which is not a new idea, but it's an idea that Paul has echoed now 
at least three times in the letter of First Timothy that a pastor or a leader in the church is not supposed to be quarrelsome, not supposed to be a lover of money, and this is like a, a profound command given to Timothy. Now, that's, I think, an extent, by extent, an application to all Christians, but I think it's primarily an application to Christian preachers and teachers, um, which means that at that point, it's not an application so much for y'all as it is for me, but it's good that you all are aware of it because um, then if you see that in me, you call it out. That's kind of how this works because this letter would have been read in front of the whole church, which means if Paul says about Timothy, he's supposed to be a certain way and Timothy's not behaving that way, well then everyone knows. <laughs> and so there's no, there's no hiding, there's no um, kind of uh, playing sleight of hand, right? So Timothy's supposed to flee those things and instead of those things, pursue righteousness. Now, um, I'm a little directionally challenged, but I'm, that way is north, right? Okay. So if I go north from here, north is Carmel, right? North is Fishers. If I go north of this location, I will end up in, nor in the northern suburbs of Indianapolis. Now, if I go in that direction south, and I really, really want to, no matter how hard I want to, I walk with a lot of determination. I'm not going to end up in Carmel. No matter how long I walk, no matter how determined I am on that walk, I'm not going to get there, right? Because there's a directionality to where you're going. It's the same idea here, right? Uh, he says, flee certain things, pursue other things. Godliness is like that. And I think one of the greatest deceptions in our world is that faith of whatever stripe and variety and color is all kind of the same. And as long as you have enough of that thing, let's say enough of a love for some spiritual deity, some, some general benevolence towards mankind, as long as you have that enough, then you're in. Then you're on the, on the good side of God and you'll be, you'll be okay. But you have to flee certain things and pursue other things, and it's kind of a narrow kind of trajectory, right? So if Timothy pursues really, really hard things that are not truth, no matter how faithfully he pursues them, they will lead him in a bad direction, right? Just like if I walk with a lot of determination south, I'm never going to go to Carmel. So he's supposed to flee certain things, but he's also supposed to pursue other things. And in this case, that list, if you look up at verse 4 and 5, there's a long list of things that mark the false teachers. They're puffed up. They understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy. And the, uh, if you can skip a, a little bit of it in verse 5, they produce constant friction among the people. Uh, this list in verse 11 is almost like the opposite of that list. So Timothy's not supposed to do those things. He's supposed to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And there's a long list there, but I'd like to just highlight the difference at the end of that list between gentleness and the kind of uh, quarrelsomeness and friction which is highlighted in the false teachers. And I think this is something, especially, you know, we're, we're a young church, and I think young Christians can tend more towards quarrelsomeness than gentleness. Um, and I think that should be first, again, modeled by leaders in the church, and then secondarily also by extension Christians within the, the local church. Um, but I think there's a great danger, particularly for those of us who love theology and doctrine, which I hope you all do, um, to, to make that a, a means or a justification for quarrelsomeness. Now, there's a difference between loving theology and loving to quarrel, and, there's a different, and, and you need to be able to recognize the difference, right? If I love theology, I should also be able to recognize where that is a fruitful conversation and where that is an unfruitful, quarrelsome kind of division that's, that's taking place. And we talked about this last week, but there are reasons where Paul thinks it's right to quarrel and divide. He thinks there are some issues significant enough for that. 
but he's also big on, um, you know, Christian liberty. And if, if someone eats food sacrificed to idols and someone can't because of their conscience, then you should live at peace with one another, right? So there's, there's also reasons not to divide, and Paul makes that clear. And so Timothy is supposed to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and then gentleness is kind of that, that thing that I think is the opposite of quarrelsomeness. So he's supposed to be gentle to the people in his congregation as he's dealing with the sin in their lives, as he's dealing with maybe their failures, maybe their weaknesses, right? Um, gentleness, I think, is a mark of uh, a mature, um, let's say, elder in the church, a mature pastor. Now, the modern conception of gentleness is usually like uh, a push, someone's a pushover, right? If someone, if someone is easily walked upon, we could say of that person, oh, they're just a gentle person. But I think gentleness requires you to actually be able to be other than that. So I think gentleness requires the ability to be harsh or the ability to be divisive and then the active restraint of that. That's gentleness, right? Having no capacity to be harsh doesn't make you gentle. It just makes, it just, this is your default, right? This is, this is all you have capacity for. So a good example of this, it would be like, um, if, if you, uh, if you've ever seen, um, uh, let's say someone who's completely outmatched in, in a physical fight, right? Um, if, if one person is completely outmatched and they're getting beaten in the fight, we wouldn't say of them, they're exercising gentleness, right? Because that's just what's happening to them, right? Now, let's say, uh, you have an adult male, let's say a 30 year old who's, uh, wrestling with their child, right? If the adult male doesn't use their full-blown strength on that kid, we would say they're exercising a form of gentleness, right? Now, that's different than if two kids are fighting together because they're not exercising gentleness. That's just their strength limits, right? So similarly, what Timothy has to have capacity for is divisiveness, the ability to quarrel, the ability to be um, sharp and, and harsh at times. But that is supposed to be targeted towards the false teachers, and he's supposed to be able to exercise gentleness towards the people within the church, right? So gentleness requires the capacity to not be gentle, but then to exercise gentleness, okay? And so, and you see that in the next verse uh, where he says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life. These are active kind of languages, right? He's, he's telling him to fight for this, to um, pursue the, the faith, take hold of eternal life. Um, and I would just like to say, uh, as, as Christians, when we fight the fight of faith, this is a winning fight for us, right? Jesus has conquered. And so when we fight, we're not fighting on a coin flip of whether this is going to work out or not. We fight a winning battle. And so I think we should pursue that as we think about how do we pursue gospel ministry? How do we pursue reconciliation with one another? All of those things, we fight from the winning side of, of that. And then um, you get this kind of weird language of what is the good confession? And Jesus had this good confession. And th that's simply the profession of, uh, of faith in Christ, right? Um, Timothy's told to take hold of eternal life, of which he was called and of which he made the good confession. Jesus Christ is the, the vehicle by which you attain eternal life. And then uh, in verse 13, he says, uh, Jesus, who, who in his testimony or his confession before Pontius Pilate also made the good confession. So what did Jesus do before Pontius Pilate? He basically... Didn't, he didn't ever discount or recant from this idea that he was king and he was the Messiah, right? That's the thing that gets him crucified, is that he doesn't recant from that. So he makes that as a good confession. And so Timothy's confession is that same thing, that Jesus is the true Lord, he is the true Christ. Um, 
And so Timothy's charged to do this in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ Jesus, and in the presence of many witnesses. Um, and that's because, well, it's, it's bad for the church if their leader, like the leader of this lo- local church in Ephesus, has professed faith at one time, and then after they face opposition or some sort of uh, hostility, they recant and they say, actually, I'm not a Christian anymore. Imagine what that would do down through the ranks and members of the local church. Um, so the pastor is supposed to hold fast to the good confession, but obviously if the pastor is the leader of the church, well then other Christians are also by extension, if the, pa- if the elder is doing it, they're also called to hold fast to that confession. So Timothy is supposed to hold fast to it as the one who goes before the other members. And then uh, we see that the point of this is to be unstained and free from reproach. That's verse 14. Um, and the reason you want to be unstained is because when Jesus Christ comes, when he finds his church, uh, we'll, uh, th- this is a motivation for us to be, let's say, found right before him. Um, you get a similar idea in 1 John where it says that we would not be afraid at his appearing, but we would be bold before him. Similar, similar here. Um, and, so, and then it says something really interesting about Jesus. Uh, it's a, a claim to divinity. So in verse 14, um, it, he, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 15, it says, which he will display at the proper time. He, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. Paul is basically saying Jesus is God. He's not saying Jesus was a really high being, but not God. He's saying, he, he's saying of Jesus, he's the only sovereign, he's the king of kings, he's the Lord of lords. It's uh, quite a profound statement. And then he says something even more striking, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, what we know is that people have seen Jesus. And the resolution of this is in John chapter 1, verse 18, where, it's, where John writes, no one has ever seen God except him who has made himself known, Jesus Christ, who is the manifestation of God. So it's right that no one can see God. God dwells in unapproachable light. But Jesus, in his incarnation, reveals God to us. But that doesn't diminish Jesus' divinity because here it's said of Jesus that he also dwells in unapproachable light who no one has ever seen, right? So Jesus, through his humanity, makes God known but that doesn't reduce his divinity, right? He still is fully God, the only sovereign. So you see this kind of complex divinity and humanity of Jesus kind of being alluded to. And it's to him, to Jesus, be honor and eternal dominion forever. And his honor and eternal dominion is linked to, verse 12, fighting the good fight, right? If Jesus has dominion, the fight is a winning fight. If Jesus has eternal dominion, then the fight is definitely a winning fight, right? That's, that's a vision of Psalm 2. He, the king sits on, on the throne, and so his people are free to obey him. And so then uh, you might think Paul should have stopped there, but Paul kind of circles back to something he said earlier in the letter, um, which is kind of a further commentary on richness and poverty. Now, when he says in verse 17, as to the rich of this present age, I want you to think about yourself because by the standards of the first century world, we are all rich. We are all extremely wealthy. The fact that there's air conditioning right now on a super hot day outside is proof of the fact that we live in richness, right? Which is something a first century, if it's hot outside and you work outside, that's it. You know, that just, that's just what's happening to you, right? So we have a certain level of richness. So when he says rich in this present age, think of yourself. 
Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes upon the uncertainty of riches, but upon God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So if you're rich, which you are, don't ever put your trust in your riches, but rather continue to put your trust in God, who is the source of your richness, the source of your blessing, right? Because riches are an uncertain thing to put your trust in. It's not wrong to have wealth. The Bible is clear about that. Abraham's a wealthy man. Um, and even here, Paul, Paul assumes that there will be rich pe- people in the church who Timothy is pastoring. The point is, riches is not sinful. In fact, in verse 10, it doesn't say that money is sinful either. It says the, it's love of money that's sinful. The love of money, the greed and the lust for money is what causes someone to fall away. But we do need to guard ourselves if we are rich, if we have access to money, to make sure that we do keep ourselves away from setting our hope on that, but rather to actively always be setting our hope in God. I think a practical way to do that is before meals to pray uh, with our paychecks to um, give of that generously to the Lord and even possibly uh, to thank the Lord for paychecks when you receive that. Um, when you go into work, you can think about and consider the fact that it is God who has blessed you with this job. And it is not, yes, it is your skill. Yes, it is your, let's say, ingenuity and your application and all that. But it, it, more so, it's God who's blessed you with this opportunity. And I think it's always wise for us to keep that in mind as we, we take advantage of all of the things the Lord blesses us with. So wealth is not evil, but setting our hope in wealth is. Uh, that'll, that'll lead to apostasy. So the rich in this present age, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. So if you're wealthy, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't absolve you from the need to be actively kind towards other people, to be rich in good works. You are to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for yourself a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is actually life or truly life. This is the same thing that Paul says of Timothy. He's his true son in the faith. So if you want genuine life, true life, it's not found in material wealth, material possessions. It's actually found in uh, this world, which is more certain, the one that is future, the age of which we all aspire towards. And so wealth is a, a tool, a thing we can leverage to richly behave towards others. It's not something we should become fixated on as though that is the hope that we have. Um, if you have a big retirement fund and a solid job and a, and a house that's paid off and no debt and all that stuff, that's all wonderful and good stewardship, but that's not ultimately where our hope lies, right? And so true, what, what is true life is beyond material possessions. And if you just look at Hollywood actors and professional athletes and people who've actually had access to a lot of money, you'll, they'll recognize the emptiness that wealth has. I don't probably need to belabor that point very much. And then the closing uh, piece, uh, we can ask what's at stake um, with this riches. It's kind of the same question I asked last week. Um, Timothy's supposed to guard the deposit which is trusted to him to avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called, and in ESV it's in quotations, knowledge. So this is not real knowledge, this is knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So let's say, what if Timothy doesn't carefully guard the faith, and what if he does give himself over to quarrels and vain speculations, and he, he's, he's always up in fights, and he's not gentle and loving towards his people? What's at risk for Timothy? Well, he'll, he's going to spiral into the irreverent babble, false knowledge, and ultimately, by professing that kind of thing, some have actually swerved from the faith. So when you take something that's not important, and you supplant that for the thing that's actually important, that's kind of like apostasy because you're walking away from the, the actual thing you confess and going on to something, let's say, insignificant. And so for Timothy, there's nothing less than apostasy at stake. 
But also, uh, if you'll just flip like one page back in most of your Bibles, um, it's at the end of chapter 4. Um, and it's verse 16, the very last chapter of, uh, very last verse of chapter 4. Paul says to Timothy, Keep a close watch upon yourself and upon your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, okay, we can say at the end of chapter 6, if Timothy swerves from the faith, who's also at risk? His hearers, right? So Timothy's endurance, Timothy's faithfulness, also is going to lead to the increased faithfulness of his people. Now, a pretty simple example of this is if you think about pretty much any of the major church downfall scandals within the last 10, 15 years, I don't really want to draw too much attention to them, but you could probably imagine the one that you've heard about or is recent in your mind. Every single one of those pastors who's endured scandal has in the trail of their scandal left a lot of Christians or people who might have been on the verge of new faith, young faith, completely in the wind, uh, deconstructing and saying this whole Christianity thing is not what it's cut out to be because the person who I knew was godly walked away from the faith. That's exactly what's in mind here. If Timothy apostatizes, he's going to lead other people astray as well or at least shake their faith. And so Paul's saying, hey, don't do that. And then uh, the last piece of this, and I might say this is all aimed pretty narrowly at Timothy, but when, he said, when Paul says, grace be with you, that's a closing remark, but that tells us this letter is written to more than just Timothy because some of you might have a footnote in your Bible on the you. Uh, it's, uh, in grammatical terms, it's a plural you. So in English, we don't have that. So if I can say you to a single person and I can say you to a group of people, if you're in the South, you would say y'all, right? That's the you plural. So when Paul's saying grace be with y'all, he's saying it to the whole everyone, right? Um, which means that everything that's been written in this letter, while parts of it are addressed narrowly to Timothy and his responsibilities, it's also something the whole church ought to be aware of because there are instructions for the church itself, but also as a congregation, as a, as a church, you need to know what's required of, of the people who are you know, leading you. You need to know of what moral quality they ought to be. You need to know of what, what kind of doctrine they ought to be teaching. If they're quarrelsome, um, it's, as much, it's their responsibility to not be quarrelsome, but it's also, in some sense, the church's burden to come to them and say, hey, you're being unnecessarily quarrelsome. You should confess that as sin and repent of that, right? Churches and pastors ought to have, I think, that dynamic or that relationship. And if ever there's a pastor who's unapproachable, who is off limits from correction, you can be sure that that's an unhealthy dynamic uh, at that moment and will lead to downfall at some point in the future. Um, and so the invitation then at the end of this letter, or maybe the modern application would be, um, as you, as members of Rua Church, as you see these qualities, um, you are to both, let's say, desire them in pastors of the church, uh, but also if you don't see them present, to say, hey, that's not your standard. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be living like this. And uh, so... Uh, it's a, it's kind of a, Timothy's office is a public office, and so therefore it has public critique associated with it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So, um, I think I'll stop there. Uh, there's probably a lot more that I want to say, but for the sake of time, I won't. And uh, then we can move on to some discussion. So let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, this letter and your word, uh, which is, within it and throughout it and active for our lives. We pray that there would be um, verses and words and applications here tonight uh, which would feed our souls for the week to come, uh, for the days uh, ahead, and even for 
the workday tomorrow, Lord, that we would face uh, this week and our lives with boldness, with confidence, and with faithfulness. As, as Paul calls Timothy to godliness, would we all aspire towards godliness as Christians, to walk uh, pursuing righteousness and fleeing from uh, pointless and useless things which would lead us astray. We pray that you would guard us by the grace of your Spirit and you would inspire with us the desire to, to want these things. We pray this together in your name. Amen.